Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Dead TV Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all the canceled television shows in the sci-fi, fantasy, and horror genre. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Seneca. And today we're covering episodes 11 and 12. We're going to start with episode 11. Mr. Seneca has the plot synopsis for us. Epiphany. Originally aired January 2nd, 1989. Waiting to set off a tribal war within the human race, the aliens attempt to detonate a nuclear bomb at a U.S.-Soviet disarmament summit. What does epiphany mean? Is, is that like when I have an epiphany about something? So epiphany, it's also called the Feast of, of Epiphany, but it's actually a celebration in the biblical sense that falls on January 6th or in some traditions January 19th, depending on when you celebrate Christmas. But the 12 days of Christmas are actually December 25th to January 6th. So the Feast of Twelve Night, the Epiphany, is actually on January 6th. Oh, okay. Gotcha. This episode has How a, it relates to this episode, I have no idea. This episode has a classically trained actor in it, uh, a classic of television and of cinema as well. We have the original John Steed from the British Avengers television series. Ooh. Patrick McNee, who plays the Soviet uh, that is uh, taking the pictures, and then he, later on he meets with um, Iron Iron Ironwood Iron Horse, um, is uh, John Steed from the Avengers. He was wow, also I in. I did not know that. Yep, he was. Uh, that that's why I recognized him. I was like, hey, God, this guy's familiar, but not from what I think it is. What I'm familiar with him from is he is Doctor George Wagner, uh, one of the good werewolves in The Howling. He tries to help D. Wallace Stone's character in that movie, and he was Doctor Walton in a TV series I just finished. That's why he was so familiar to me because he was Doctor Walton in Nightman. He was uh, who helped Johnny Domino with his newfound powers and gave him like sage. Um, Obi-Wan Kenobi-style advice uh, throughout the episode. He died in 2015. But he was also, uh, a lot of people know him as uh, uh, Count Ilbis in Battlestar Galactica, the original. Oh, yes! So he yeah. is a long-time yeah. character actor with a lot of great roles in uh, things like, uh, Battlestar, like I said, Battlestar Galactica. And again, I, I think I was first introduced to him in The Howling, because he's one of the werewolves in The Howling, but he's actually a good werewolf. We never see him transform, per se, but he's definitely of the werewolf people, let's just say. Um, and then uh, <laughs> Katya, who is femme fatale, kind of the Black Widow, you know, because the Black Widow was a oh, Russian defector. She's a, she's a nuclear physicist yes. and played by Deborah Wakem. And she was in Major League. I don't know who she was in Spider-Man. She was Billy's mom, it says. I don't know, really know what that means. Breakout Needful Things, if you ever saw that based on the Stephen King book, um, one of the... Stephen King stories he actually really hates. Uh, and uh, Quantum Leap for an episode. Yep. Sherry Silo, I remember that episode. Airwolf. Yeah, which Your we went over last airwolf. week. Yep. And she plays Kathy on V, which I don't really remember too much, but um, a bit part actor. I don't know if she's still working today, because as of 2003, she's pretty much kind of fell off the map. David Ferry is in the episode. He is best known as being in the Boondock Saints, and I just watched this before the election. Man of the Year. He played Senator Mills. Oh, nice. Yeah, very, that is one of the best political satire movies ever made, starring the late, great Robin Williams as a Stephen Colbert kind of guy who runs for President of the United States. It's excellent, excellent. Yes. I, but uh, he was Detective Dolly in the Boondock Saints and the Boondock Saints sequel as well. And he was also a voice on Assassin's Creed. The voice of Benjamin Disseroli. In one of those games, I guess. 
2015. Okay. Um, yeah. I've only ever played, like, one of those. They, they put out way too many for me to keep up with. They're like Call of Duty games after a while. Um, I just, I lost interest in Assassin's Creed after the first one. I was like, what? There's a fifth one? So, that just kind of took me out of it. And when you put up way too many video games of the same title in such a short amount of time, it just, it completely disconnects me from the franchise. I mean, yeah, you could say there's a lot of Resident Evil games, but the last Resident Evil game came out in 2018, I believe, or 2017. The next one doesn't come out until later this year, so that's a pretty decent amount of time between them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's, then, there's just video games I can't play. Right, right. And then we have other character actors in here, like Worker Number 1. Maggie uh, played... Um, Maggie Hollick was in Goosebumps. She was Worker Number 2. So they, we don't have a lot of people with, like, identifiable traits or whatever. And, of course, there's a big crowd scene later on when they defuse the bomb that we'll get to, maybe if we can identify some of those people. So, right at the beginning, there's a car accident, and uh, the al- there's alien nuns watching it with the glasses on, sunglasses on. And then they watch a guy get surreal. mugged. And then they watch a guy get mugged, and then there's just eerie nun music playing every time they're seen. Yeah, it's, it's like they're judging... <laughs> like actual nuns, uh, judging the humanity and how good or evil they are becoming. Right. And uh, what do the aliens call us? We are hopelessly combative, which is 100% correct if you watched what happened in D.C. recently. Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) A comment left on the Facebook, I'm sorry, a comment left on the website recently was, I don't appreciate when you guys get very political. And I'm like, well, when there's something on the show that relates to what's going on in the stupidity of today, we're going to bring it up. And when the aliens say we are hopelessly combative, guess what? They're 100% fucking right. God, I'm shocked that alien race hasn't wiped us out. (laughs) Uh, they, they also gave the statistic that we are 96.875% uh, statistically going to eliminate its, uh, ourselves due to tribal warfare. Which, they mean tribal, they mean the countries, not tribal like Native American tribal. So just in case anyone's kind of wondering, because I, I heard that and I read it and I was well, just like, tribal? tribal like, about, usually I think tribal, I think Native American. Tribal is really more, tribal is really more about... Um, groups of people versus what you would consider a Native American tribe. So, like, a group of supporters storming the Capitol is like a group of other people. You know, that people, just groupings are tribes, you know, like a group of our friends could be called a tribe, too, you know? They go to Santa Clarita, and that reminds me of the canceled television show immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, according to Drew Barrymore, when COVID is settled down enough, she is she is definitely working trying to get Netflix to wrap it up in a movie. Which a lot of people would probably really love, because they left the third season hanging on that show. And that was a fun, fun horror comedy show with Drew Barrymore. I love the Santa Clarita Diet. Like, loved that show. Yes, definitely. Well, Blackwood's got a little piece on the side in Russia that he met in a, in France years ago, which is interesting. And apparently Iron Horse is upset about this because of the strained sexual tension between the two of them, most likely. That's what I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I believe this is a 1988, and you're not allowed to talk about your feelings of of, uh, of another person of the same sex, and that is what Iron Horse is feeling. All that time while he was in the guerrilla warfare fighting the Predator alongside Schwarzenegger and Apollo Creed, this is what happened. 
<laughs> he's just very apprehensive about Blackwood going off and doing his own thing because he never says where he's going or where he's going with. And this is supposed to be a classified situation. So his safety is his problem. And, you know, that gets him all twisted about it. I think I, 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 I just think he wants to bone um, Blackwood. That's all. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, it's not my thing. I'm a pretty straight man. But, you know, love is love. And I just think that the I think the colonel has some suppressed sexual urges. <laughs> what was that? Definitely possessive. Yeah, 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 very much so. <laughs> um, by the way, you mentioned uh, the date of the episode airing, so this is the first episode of the new year, the final year of the decade. Yeah. 1989, uh, January 2nd. This was a huge year, too, for uh, media, too, because think about all the stuff that came out in 1989. We have the Batman movie. We have the a terrible Star Trek V. We have the final Indiana Jones film that everyone actually cares about. Uh, we have Ghostbusters 2, we have The Wizard. Big year, but this was the year of the bat. <laughs> the episode was written by Neil Fiernally, who also was a director in several things, such as Stargate Atlantis, R.L. Stein's The Haunting Hour, Look Who's Talking Now, which is not that great. R.L. Stein's The Haunting Hour is kind of like an updated version of Goosebumps. It came out from 2010 to 2014. He directed 26 episodes. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, he also did uh, Mantis, which I hope we could get to maybe one day. It stars the actor who was on Alias, who was the voice of John Jones, the Martian Manhunter of Mars. Very classic actor. Love, I would love to meet him one day. He's so cool. He's definitely got that deep, baritone voice, you know, like a black actor would have sometimes. And Mantis, yeah. as far yeah. as I'm aware, Mantis was one of the... was as, as far as I'm aware, Mantis was the first superhero... TV series about a black man, and it was created by, I believe, Sam Raimi. I think I, I, it's a show I'd love to, us to get to because well, it it only ran for episode, one season. In this episode, the episode revolves around nuclear material being stolen and then being placed onto a bomb in a van, and then that van is then supposed to light up the nuclear bomb close to the disarmament ceremony. And that is going to trigger a war between Russia and America. Right. And but I love... I think they were somehow di diverted because... I think they were somehow diverted because they didn't know how parking tickets work. Yeah, the little girl comes along to the police officer and says, but but, but you got to put money in the meter. And he just, like, does it all nonchalantly. When he could have just reached out with his alien hand and just snapped her little neck. <laughs> And stuffed her in the van. That's what I would have done. I'm just saying. If I was the alien, by the way, evil alien who wants to destroy the world, that's what I would have done. I'm not saying that's what I would have done as a human being. I'm just saying. They do treat kids a little weirdly in this show. They treat them like, like the children. Alien... They should be treating them just like adults and just kill them. <laughs> Seriously, it's so inconsistent. I'm sorry. I mean, they don't seem to be having children of their own. You know what I mean? By the way, this is yeah. the actor I mentioned who was in the Boondock Saints. This is the cop. And uh, they just keep getting ticket after ticket. That wouldn't happen either, by the way. No, you wouldn't be towed on the same day that you'd start getting tickets. No. Give you at least a chance to retrieve your car. Correct. What are the aliens called in New York City? A cesspool. I didn't know that one. Oh, a cesspool. Yes, the <laughs> advocate. That's, that's where the pink slime was for Ghostbusters 2. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, do you also notice that we get to see the aliens without human forms and they're super tall compared to when they were in the movie? They were really short. 
Yeah, it is strange, although I kind of chalk that up to some aliens being more beefy than others. I chalk it up to the costume's got to fit the actor inside it. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> you also see the advocate's hands, too. And they're usually pretty much in those shrouds the entire time. I thought they got new bodies. And now they're but you the see alien their hands. alien hands, you don't see their human hands. No. That's what's really weird. We see the full backside of the aliens, and then we see the 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 um the advocates doing stuff, and they they're exposing their arms and hands, which is very unusual. I wonder if they just take off their human suits and just leave them aside, so that they ha- can just be in their protective suits for a while, and maybe the human suit is itchy or something. I can imagine those human suits deteriorate, considering where they're living is basically un where they are. We would not be able to go to because that's the whole point. They're living in a nuclear testing site that is just ra- yeah. pure radiation that they are okay with because it protects them from the germs of the outside world. But if we went there, we would die within probably hours or minutes of radiation poisoning or at least get cancer eventually. Oh, for sure. For sure. And um, didn't we just see an episode where they had cured the chicken pox and therefore radiation poisoning for this body? So I thought they they had some nice perfect bodies that they could just live in for a while. I love the exchange back and forth between Iron, um, between the Colonel and Blackwood that says, why didn't you bring her to church or a dinner or a movie? Why did you have to bring her back here? And Blackwood says, I did. Did what? I took her to a movie. (laughs) (laughs) I had to write that whole part down because I was like, that's good. That's really good. Yeah, he took her to the dinner and a date. <laughs> Didn't tell anyone he was taking someone out or bringing them back home to a secure facility. Uh, but she wants to defect, and that's why he brought her home. Correct. That's when we meet John Steed, who's taking pictures, and he meets up with the colonel later on, and that's when the colonel gets the whole information, that this defection would be bad. It's like they, the Russians would let it happen, but they don't want it to happen. Yeah, but, you know, when is a defection, just, just like... Blackwood says, like, when is a defection, you know, conveniently timed? You know, when is it going to be a good time for her to defect? The year before the Berlin Wall comes? The idea that you have to actually defect makes it, you know, a trap in in your country. The year before the Berlin Wall comes down? Perfect time to defect, I guess. But would they let you go? Don't think they have much of a choice, because two years later, the Soviet Union completely falls apart. Oh, that's true, too. Yeah. Don't forget, 1991 is right around the corner, and this is like the year the Berlin Wall came down, right? 1989? Yeah. So this nuclear blast would be 30 miles in radius. The aliens talk about it affecting, you know, like 10 million people. I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. And then they thought, well, once we do this one, then they'll figure out what are other high-value targets to, to affect. And it seems their whole plans were sidelined because they just kept getting tickets. But that didn't really affect them too, too much. I mean, they paid the meter like one time, but they never seemed to come back out and deal with the problem with the meter made. Yeah, I, I'm not sure whether getting caught was part of their plan, although it doesn't seem to be that way. But there was an alien in a in a cop body on site kind of overseeing the van. So they would hear that the city is being evacuated, so that means that they wouldn't affect as many pe- people as they wanted to. I'm not exactly sure what was alien planned and what was just it got away from them. Katya seems to be... Plan going on here. Katya seems to be a uh, expert bomb diffuser because she's the one who's able to diffuse the bomb. She is a nuclear physicist, and she says that she, you know, works to create these types of things. 
So I guess she would be the perfect bomb expert to defuse it. Yeah, and uh, Iron Horse and, and her defuse uh, two sets of triggers successfully. The last shot after Katya leaves uh, and Blackwood and Iron Horse have their, like, you know, you're my friend, buddy. Oh, buddy, I love you! And they stare at each other longingly. One of the aliens <laughs> commits suicide in the worst CGI ever. Yeah, horrible. I mean, he literally just falls down, but it, he's just like, you know, he quotes what the aliens, you know, the the line the aliens are always saying, but the way he's tumbling is just so bad. But I guess failure means death. They keep saying life immortal, and they keep killing each other. I'm wondering what is their life immortal about? Is it, does it come up in the second season? I don't know. I mean, I know in the I, second I've season... I have not seen any aliens being born. I know in the second season we get some different advocates. You know, the, the alien high lords, the alien leaders, or whatever change, so... But everything changes. They don't really have immortal lives. But in the second season, a lot of stuff changes due to production and a whole lot of other problems behind the scenes we already went over. But uh, they advance the story along in a different way, too, so... Okay. Yeah, that's all the notes I have for this episode. That is all the notes I have here for this episode as well. And we'll take a short break, and we'll be back with the next episode of the Dead TV Podcast from a word from our sponsor, Mr. Seneca's What Are You Talking About? The Time Machine. The Time Machine on the Dead TV Podcast. Dorgan Ramen is a restaurant in Ashland, Massachusetts. Serves traditional and authentic Japanese ramen, Thai noodle soups, and the best chicken wings in the Metro West. Everything's done in-house from scratch, and they use only the highest quality products from small farms. Co-chef owners... Papanook and Alan McIntosh combine their culinary skills with traditional Japanese cuisine to create an authentic, amazing flavor in every dish. Located at 1 West Union Street on Ashland, Massachusetts, their phone number is 508-309-3416. Or they can be located on Facebook at Dorgan Ramen Ashland and on their website as well. www.dorganramen.com Have you ever discussed the scientific nature of the universe with friends over a drink or a smoke? Things like, what is the fourth dimension? How does time really work? H.G. Wells' first book, The Time Machine, An Invention, opens up with that very conversation. He uses analogies that are both simple and dynamic. In short, our world is comprised of four dimensions, length, height, depth, and duration, or time. In order for something to exist, it has to exist for a duration of time, or does it exist at all? Those types of ideas and concepts blew away Victorian-era readers. It quickly became the best-selling novel of 1895. The Time Machine was based off a previous work of H.G. Wells's entitled The Chronic Argonauts, which was just a series of short stories he made for his college newspaper in 1888. Some scenes from the original went directly into the final product. One note about how H.G. writes, he rarely names characters in his early works. He calls the main character the time traveler. The other people in this philosophical scientific conversation are similarly called the psychologist, the medical man, the young man, the provincial mayor, the journalist, etc. And one grumpy man he named Philby. He's also not too specific with what these people look like. Maybe this is a way he can incorporate personality archetypes into his works 
so the reader can project themselves into those characters. Is it easier to see yourself as the time traveler, or as Ralph, or Sam, or Alan? H.G. Wells also tells this story as a character narrating a story that he was told. So the voice for the duration of the book is one of the dinner guests who witnessed the time traveler's wonders. Then he relays what was said to him from the time traveler. This is what's known as a framed narrative, a story within a story. It was a popular literary technique in the Victorian era. H.P. Lovecraft also wrote in this fashion. This type of writing style removes any life-threatening tension from the story because you know they got out of the situation since they lived to tell the tale. So the book takes on a dreamlike quality and is such a page-turner that it's hard to put down. The story still holds up today. I suggest hearing an audiobook of The Time Machine unabridged. It's only four hours long, but you get the added emotion of the delivery of the lines. Wonderful. The plot is the account of the narrator attending a dinner party, sees a miniature time machine discorporate and disappear, then at the following dinner party hears the time traveler's fantastic and heart-wrenching story of loneliness and disillusionment. He hears about the sickening sensation of time travel and about the world of the year 802,701. There, the time traveler found two different subsets of humanity, a gentle, small, almost elvish people called the Eloi, who only eat fruit and have a pleasurable existence, and the Morlocks, a subterranean primate worker-class humanity that adapted to deep darkness and eats meat. That last part becomes important, but I won't spoil it for you. As you read the book, the ideas of how these societies interact changes multiple times as the time traveler uncovers truths. The mystery is captivating. After losing and regaining his time machine, he then travels into the distant future of the year 30 million, in which giant crabs roam the earth and the sun is about to devour the planet. After the time traveler tells his tale, the narrator calls in on him once again, coincidentally just before another trip, sees him vanish, hears a crash, a yell, and never sees him again. Scholars have dissected this novel and believe that the story tells the tale of society struggles between the upper classes and the lower ones of the Victorian era. But also the symbolism in the book may represent a wide number of core themes of innocence, secrecy, civilization, love, and sacrifice. As well as you can imagine, a story that still holds up today has had a lot of adaptations. Leonard Nimoy was the voice of the time traveler in the 1994 Alien Voices radio drama version. There have been five radio drama productions across the UK and America, plus at least four movies, some of them not so good, and multitudes of authors that wrote books set in the world of H.G. Wells, The Time Machine, but are not H.G. Wells' works. In 1956, Classics Illustrated transformed the story into a comic book form. My mom actually owned that one. This story began the concept of a machine moving through time. Without H.G. Wells' works, we wouldn't have Doctor Who, Doc Brown, Bill and Ted, Time Turners, Terminators, Time Bandits, Quantum Leap, or others. Like seriously, this was and continues to be such an influential book to the science fiction community. Good night. And we're back with the second episode, episode 12 of War of the Worlds. Among the Philistines, originally aired January 9th, 1989, the Blackwood team consults with noted linguist Adrian Bouchard to decipher the alien's transmissions. He is pretty much the only really new character for the episode, Cedric Smith, and he is best known as playing Professor Charles Xavier on the 1990s X-Men cartoon series. Oh, really? Nice. And he was also a bartender in the movie Heavy Metal, 
which is relevant that we talk about heavy metal today because who passed away today and it was officially confirmed? Julie Strain, model, actress, a lot of Jim Wynorski movies. Uh, she was the she was one of the people in heavy metal. Um, she's basically like the heavy metal magazine model for a number of years. Um, in fact, uh, Kevin Eastman, co-creator of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, loved heavy metal so much he bought the magazine and married the model. <laughs> She was a beauty too. She was uh she was that kind of woman that you stuck up on your wall. <laughs> I mean, seriously, she had that look to her. She was that kind of poster girl. Yeah, she was. And uh she was best known as also for how I got introduced to her. She was the official model for the character Vampirella for a number of years, which makes a lot of sense when you look at her. <laughs> Great many of covers of Vampirella photo covers, you know, cosplay covers, uh before that term was a thing, cosplay cover, model covers. Uh, had her on it. So episode, we find out the name of the planet that the aliens are from. Yes. What's the name of the planet? Mortex. I have no idea where they got that term. No. Is that that's not even a real planet, right? That's not like a planet that we're no. aware of. No, I did a little bit of research. I couldn't find anything. Hmm. They probably just pulled it out of their ass. <laughs> they just need a name of a planet. Probably. They're like, all right, this is good enough. That's what we're going to use. So this new character, I thought this was like the permanent character that comes on the show, but no. And when you were watching this episode, did you know that this character was an alien the whole time? Heck no. He acts human. Yeah, he acts very human. He acts very surprised when he hears about the aliens. You know, and they have to do some convincing to get him to come along because he finds out they have a supercomputer, but they want to be all hush-hush about it. But then they bring him along, and he turns out to be an alien, which is... I was, I, I was like... Here's the thing, though. The IMDb uh, description of the episode doesn't reveal that, but the back of the box on the um, the photo I sent you did. Mm -hmm. So if you read the description for the episode, you were spoiled immediately. Yeah, which is kind of why I didn't use that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, he... Um, oh, we forgot to yeah. talk about, by the way, the previous episode, how the aliens died. Do you, do you remember we made a joke about it off the air? Yes, well, let, let's go through that. So at the start of this episode, Blackwood and his crew are using the, the cops and trapping some aliens. You know, they're transporting nuclear material or something like that. These three aliens, immediately, as soon as they're caught, out of the vehicles, they press this little heart thing, and then they basically suicide bomb themselves. Right. That's what it's all. Yeah. It's really gooey and really messy. Exactly. For some reason, I thought that was a previous episode, but you're right, that was this episode. We also learned that uh, Norton and the Colonel spar, but what I can only describe as basically them swinging and connecting with each other, and then swinging and connecting with each other. That's not actually fighting. No, it's fighting. There is movement. There is hitting each other. I mean, Norton is just swinging, and then the and, Iron Horse. Yeah, I mean, they're just—I mean, they're just swinging back and forth at each other. They're not—it's—it's it's like you look at the stylized choreography of sword fighting in the prequels versus the original Star Wars trilogy, and one looks a thousand times yeah. more—you know—it looks actually art. You know, it looks better than than it did. It looks better in the in the prequels than it does in the original films. Well, you know, actual fighting doesn't look like choreography. And he isn't, Norton isn't a wheelchair, so he's kind of limited. He just tells his chair to use certain turns and go forward or backward. And, you know, he has to, you know, swing his staff and, and, and move his staff in order to connect with his opponent. And he actually does trip up Iron Horse and surprises him because his staff is actually has an iron core. And that's why it's so heavy and, and difficult to fight. 
I just don't believe the wheelchair would turn around as fast as it did. They definitely had to speed that up in post. Oh, yeah. There was no way that Ironwood, you know, would just let him turn around like that. He would have taken advantage of him with his back turned. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I, I do have the impression that Ironwood was trying to keep it easy on him. Because he's in a wheelchair? <laughs> and then was surprised by Norton's actual strength. Right, gotcha. Uh, when they bring Adrian to the complex, the dog starts barking at him, the new dog, um, who gets a gruesome <laughs> demise later on in the episode, we, we see. I mean, to the point the dog oh. is hanging in a closet and the blood is dripping on the floor. Yeah, it's a poor, poor end to a, to a pet. With the dog barking at Adrian, that was my giveaway that um, remembering that he's an alien because it reminds me of in Terminator, dogs bark at Terminators on human skin. Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely gives something strange. But see here is like right after that scene, he has this long glance at um, the kid, Debbie. And so I thought that the dog was basically protecting Debbie because this long glance was almost child predator-like. I was actually more afraid that Debbie was going to be assaulted in this episode than Adrian being an alien. Yeah, I didn't think they were going to go there at all. I I mean, it was kind of weird. Maybe it's just me, but that's what I thought in this episode because Adrian acted like a human. Like, I couldn't... Up to this point, all of the aliens in human form. I, I get what in, you're saying. It, it definitely has some Predator vibes to it. Like, come over here and sit on my knee and watch the dolphins with me. Like, ew. Yes. Yeah. He takes her hand and he leads her. Oh, come with me. I'll show you dolphins. Like, ah, uh, Debbie, please don't get hurt in this episode. And that's when uh, Norton discovers uh, the truth about the dog when um, the old man, the caretaker... Oh, Kensington. Kensington finds the dog, gets a shotgun, and goes down there to help Norton with Debbie to get Debbie to come upstairs. Because she's fascinated by these dolphins. I'm sorry. There's nothing she's watching other than dolphins swimming in the water. And it's like... That but I I forget what time what what uh, year it is nineteen eighty nine. There's no internet. There's no cell phones. There's no tech. There's no, you know she she's kind of trapped in this government complex. This must be the most fascinating thing to ever see for her. Yeah, and the dolphins are pretty cute. I guess so. <laughs> I'm just like wow, she is she is really into okay. those dolphins. <laughs> in the nineteen eighties, uh, dolphin trapper keepers, you know, dolphin patterns things were everywhere. I had shorts with little dolphins on them. I'm not too proud to admit that. So dolphins were a big thing. So it's no no wonder she's in, entranced by the dolphins on the screen. The alien truck driver in the episode before he kills himself was uh, Cliff Woolner, and he was in the mouth of madness and uh, still life, the final act murder, which I saw, but I've seen in the mouth of madness. He was a bus driver in that. And then the other one of the other aliens that kills himself, uh, Richard Beach. Uh, this is pretty much it. This is his one and done role. Oh, just a, a single day actor. Just pretty much, unless he did something they've never added to his IMDb. Um, but uh, Kensington gets killed. He gets strangled by Adrian, but not in the way I was expecting. I was expecting the alien arm to come out and just snap his neck. But then he strangles yeah. him, and he is dead. And then it's up to Norton to defend himself against. Adrian, and there is this horrible shot of him being pushed into the chair and thrown backwards, and it's the worst sped-up scene in the episode. Well, that's because the chair has to go full speed to push the alien Adrian 
uh, over to Norton, and then he can take his iron core staff and put it through the electrical plate and therefore electrifying Adrian. So all these, like, things that we've seen throughout the episode play off here. They also really drag out the amount of time it takes for uh, our three other characters who are trapped outside the complex to get back in. Harrison, Susan, and and, uh, and, uh, Iron Horse are just, like, taking their sweet time getting back in. They could probably ram the gate, but we got to watch Iron Horse get his repelling gear together, put his repelling gear on, climbing the wall... (laughs) Getting down the wall, it's like, holy crap. Oh, remember, this is supposed to be a secured complex. If anyone can just get in with a a piece of rope and climbing the fence, it would not be secure. I just think we need to drag out what they're doing because we have to give uh, Norton more screen time to fight Adrian. Yeah, that that too. (laughs) They never reveal, though, how, when Adrian was, you know, taken. Uh, But he's able to compile the... uh, information onto a big old gray floppy disk and then so, and then also a cd appears too so it's like they have floppy disks and they have cds well that was the beginning of cd technology oh okay but it looked like a normal size cd which is very funny uh but i thought it was funny that they had the floppy disk and everything and he takes the floppy disk and it is a floppy like piece of plastic and he puts it in there and then he has to flip the switch which locks the floppy disk in, in the place now we had floppy disks we also had hard disks and eventually the hard disk the terminology uh, switched to whatever we called the hard disks uh, floppy disks. And I remember I still ha- I used uh, those uh, little square hard disks for a while until I discovered what a flash drive was. And uh, floppy drives were the thing back then. Right. And, uh, I mean, CDs are rarely used in computers these days, but uh, flash drives are still pretty prominent, uh, especially if you can get, like, a terabyte flash drive. Oh, totally. Uh, uh the whole reason that they're trying to get Adrian to help them on this is that he's a linguistics expert that was trying to basically communicate with dolphins and the language of the aliens. He picks up the signal from what he says. This is the, you know, now we know that Adrian's an alien. So Adrian tipped off the police to where the truck was going to be uh, with the nuclear stuff from because he picked up signals that he was studying with his dolphins, and somehow it led him to Blackwood's lab. And that's how the team got involved together. And so they tried to connect with him to figure out the code for how to decode the alien language. And it seemed to me that Adrian input, I don't know, I'm not exactly sure how he did this, but he made the frequencies that they were looking at reflect a new code that the aliens transmitted in order to match up with that. So it's like they dropped, they, they dropped a red herring in their lap to trick them so that Adrian would have enough time to copy these files. And luckily he didn't have any contact with the outside world. So nothing got out. And Adrian never got out either. So no harm, no foul there. We lost Kensington, who has been kind of a sporadic character. If he had been in more episodes, then the weight of him getting killed off would have had more, um, you know, resonance for me. But he's, like, in the opening pilot, and then he's, like, in one other episode. The old woman is in more episodes than he is. If they'd had him in every episode, I would have cared more that he died. I mean, they give us, like, the stars and stripes over his coffin and he's in the clouds walking down on and i'm just like oh 
Well, he was a veteran. You know, they said that he fought in the 1953 war. I got that, but they needed him in more episodes for me to give a crap that he got killed off. Because <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah. I was like, well, that sucks. It would have had, uh, you know, I was, I don't know. Just it, they could have, they could have had him. They could have had that happen later on, and him get killed off much later on. You know what I mean? But it just, it just felt really okay. So they killed him. Yeah. Now, they yeah. kill off one of the other characters on the show later on, so that will have more resonance, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. Okay, I'll be surprised then. It's not Debbie, so... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I didn't want anything to happen to Debbie. I was really worried this episode. No, it's not Debbie, and Debbie is in season two. I, I Somebody corrected me saying, Debbie comes back in season two, and I was like, oh, right, that's right. I thought she was like written off the show. But no, yeah, her and her mom... Both survive, so at least those two, because, you know, they can't kill off the women. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. No, they can't. You can't kill off a woman on a show like this. What would the, what would the village elders say? <laughs> this actor has passed away anyway, but uh, because I think him, the old woman, Blackwood are all dead. And the aliens had named their little plan that they were enacting Operation Blackwood. Yes, uh, the aliens are definitely aware of something going on. I just wonder, like, what was the rest of that plan? If Adrian had gotten out and had the CD drive with him, I mean, they would have known everything that Blackwood was working on, the limitations of their data, et cetera, et cetera. I just wonder where that would have gone. Yeah, we will uh, We'll have to find out. There's lots of episodes left to uh, discover the alien's plan and get to the finale of the show. These are the things I think about late at night after watching the episodes. <laughs> this is what you sit in bed, laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, thinking about, thinking about oh, the aliens coming to get us. <laughs> who's that guy who's got like the really weird hair and his hands are always up in the gifts and he's talking about aliens and it's from some alien research show oh it's from the history channel you know, maybe he can tell us what planet Mortex is about <laughs> aliens <laughs> maybe maybe that's all the notes I have here for the Dead TV podcast uh, second episode of War of the Worlds we will be back in two weeks with another exciting episode we have some interesting stuff planned for 2021, so hopefully you stick around uh, with us and enjoy it alongside us. I think, did we post the episode on January 1st? Is that Was that the first episode of the show for the new year? I think it was. I think it was. Okay, so we already had our first episode of the new year. Yeah, we already had our first episode of the year. All right, so we edit all this out. Stick around for the rest of the year of 2021. We have some interesting things planned. We're probably going to be doing, we're probably going to be able to get to three shows this year. The third one we're keeping under wraps uh, right now as we get closer to the end of World War of the Worlds. We will expose what that show is. We agreed we're going to do a cartoon in between this show and the next show that has also a 44-episode block to it. So hopefully you uh, stick around with us for that journey. And you can find us on Facebook at the Dead TV Podcast, on our individual Twitters at Christy SAV and at Elegantly Kiki, or you can send us an email at thatradiofheart at gmail.com. If you would like to help support the podcast, a cup of coffee, buy us a slice of pizza, go to radiofheart.buymeacupofcoffee.com. There will be a link in the description notes below, or go to the Dead TV Podcast. The link is at the top of the page. Thank you, everyone. Good night. Teleback it is I, Dark Side. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. 
Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lamps and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Etrick and Arisia, Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's Who? Who's Who? The definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher.